Well, welcome everybody to the 14th episode of the Blow Off Valve podcast. It's the podcast for automotive and motorsports news, as well as anything else from the automotive world that we might find interesting to talk about. Uh, this week, we've got a really kind of a nice uh, mix of motorsport and uh, just conventional car news. Um, and we'll start off with the F1 race that was held at Imola, the Emilia Romana Grand Prix today. Uh, really kind of a fascinating race. Um, it was uh, one of those races where it started out wet and then the track dried out kind of as the race went on. Led to a lot of interesting strategic decisions about uh, tire choices and when to pit, you know, along with some more action that we'll get into. But what do you think of the race, Tucker? I mean, just as you, you know, just said, I think bringing in um, all a bunch of new strategy makes for a really cool race. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the guys have to drive a little differently with, you know, the dry line and right. the wet parts of the track. Uh, like you said, you know, it's a gamble to some extent. Like Pierre Gasly, he, what did he, when he started, he started on, on the wet, wets, the full yeah. wets, yeah. It, it definitely hurt him in the beginning, but you could hear even he popped on the radio once and was like, I think the rain's picking up. So even yeah. at that point, you know, like it, it could have gone his way. It's just, you pick and you know, you, you, you eat it or you don't. And right. so it's, it's a lot of fun to just see, you know, also some of the cars, you know, function differently uh, right. in that kind of wet weather. So you see some cars doing well that you wouldn't or ordinarily see and then uh you know like strolls a driver who seems to do pretty well in the rain and so that can be an advantage for him Um, well even like things up yeah no i agree like you look at the race and we'll get into the outcomes here in a second but you know gasly if if the rain had picked up you know maybe he's he's on the podium you know they have the weather radar obviously but they kind of have to make some educated guesses about how things are going to play out and the timing of everything. And well, plus it was, um, a little bit cooler. It, it sounded like, right. It was like in the, in the low fifties. So they had mentioned at one point on the radio that I think it was bodice. It, they said like his tires are finally just getting up to temperature, you know, and we're, yeah. Cause he was stuck in traffic for so long. And, yeah. <laughs> he was like languishing in tent and he just couldn't get temperature in the tires. Yeah, so it really makes for a. Um, I, I kind of like it, you know, when you've yeah. got perfectly, you know, ideal uh, temperatures and weather, you tend to just see the usual suspects. Um, yeah, no, I agree. It's so, so, so for those of you that didn't see the race, uh, it finished with Max Verstappen uh, on uh, in first place. Lewis Hamilton got second uh, after quite an eventual drive that we'll talk about. And Lando Norris with a hell of a drive uh, to get third on the podium. Right. But some interesting uh, points in the race that I just kind of want to bring up is, is one, you know, Hamilton's very interesting race. So on the very first turn out of, uh, you know, off the start, Max Verstappen, who started in third on the grid, had a phenomenal start, uh, quick reaction time. He started in second gear, actually, to minimize uh, wheel spin and, and get the power down. Uh, which was a good gamble on his part. And they got a uh, perfect hole shot and he yeah, beat Lewis did. to the chicane and not that only got it first, Lewis but flying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lewis had to go on, on to the uh, kind of rumble area 
and went flying and damaged uh, the left uh, front end plate on his front wing. And uh, that kind of was a sign of things to come uh, about mm-hmm. what halfway through the race or so Lewis was pushing uh, to get past some traffic, not traffic, but he was, yeah, he was working. He was trying his, to make up spot. Yeah. He's trying to make up ground. And he basically was, went into the wet part of the track, went off the dry line, yeah. lost his grip. And so his braking was not enough and went off the track and caused some front wing damage that he then had to go in and pit for. So, I mean, it was a hell of a drive by Lewis to get back up to second. Yeah, you know, and I think he alluded to the fact that he probably knew better. And I think that's one of the things I always reflect on, you know, Lewis's excellence is really his discipline. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the guy's just like a racing computer or something on the track. Well, it sounded like a brag. Post-race, he said, you know, that's the first mistake I've made in in a while. And and it's like, well, shit, he's right. (laughs) Yeah, he was right. I mean, you know, he looked and just needed to wait. I shouldn't have been going out into the wet part of the track, but I think he kind of alluded to the fact that he was getting a little impatient. And so he was pushing it. Right. I think that's probably where the mistake crept in. And so it's unusual to see. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's, that's kind of the fun thing about giving Hamilton some real pressure, some real competition. Hey, I got to make up some ground here to get caught up with Verstappen because I can't remember at what point in the race that happened, but I'm sure to some extent Lewis is aware of who he's racing and he knows that Verstappen has flamed out a few times in he Italy. Just needs to put pressure on him. Yeah, yeah. And so he's like, well, you know, I'll just wait. He's probably going to spin it or something. He's done that in yeah. conditions in the past in Italy. And then we're getting to, you know, more than the halfway point or wherever we were. And it's like, it's not quite happening yet. Okay. Yeah. Now I need to start pushing. Right. If I'm going to yeah. take first place in this. I think, I think that's, yeah. If, if Lewis is having a typical Lewis Bryce where he's in first and 20 seconds ahead of second place, like yeah, <laughs> cruising in clean air, like he, he, he doesn't have to make these kind of Mistake. decisions or mistakes. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things that helped him kind of make up some ground was uh, the race was actually red flagged. So, you know, pretty rare occurrence overall in F1, but we've had a decent number of red flags in the last year, year and a half. And this one was red flagged because of a huge crash between Hamilton's teammate, Valtteri Botas and uh, George Russell, the, uh, the, uh, you know, junior Mercedes driver. So uh, yeah. kind of some, you know, family feud there, but basically, happy. <laughs> yeah, it looked like, you know, Russell was kind of, they were coming up on a chicane. Botas was on the left, Russell on the right. And it looked like Botas just made a very temporary kind of move to the right, which Norris reacted to, or not Norris, sorry, uh, Russell reacted to by moving over farther to the right to avoid Botas. Uh, And unfortunately that put Russell onto the grass. He lost the (laughs) rear spun hit Botas and they both went off the track and significant damage to the car. Luckily both drivers were okay. Um, but it was interesting because Russell's seen as this really kind of nice, like, you know, easygoing young guy. And he got out of that car <laughs> and went He's right over to Botas and it looked like he was a <laughs> on him, but then it, it seemed like 
<laughs> it became yeah. clear that he was kind of saying yeah. something to him in anger. <laughs> yeah, kind of tapping on his helmet or something. Yeah, he like you smacked know, and, his shoulder or his helmet. I'm not sure which it was. Obviously, like when you when you look at the approach to that turn, the racing line is on the right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Botas wants to get over. And right. I think it's, 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 it's such high speed and it's such tiny reactions. I think the reality is he he was probably creeping over a little bit to set up his approach. I think um, Russell would still have enough room to stay. And I think Botas mm-hmm. was pushing him to like the outside to try yeah. to, you know, give him the inside line through this. But, you know, the truth is it's so high speed, it's tight quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Russell probably didn't expect him to move over to the right, thinking that he kind of had command of that since he was passing with right. DRS. And so right. I think he might have overreacted a titch to it. And it just it just yeah. was a small enough error by both of them or overreactions that it just turned into a catastrophe. Yeah. It's, it's tough to, it's tough to really fault. I mean, Valtteri's kind of subtle movement there. I mean, that could have just been a slight, a slight move of the right hand, you know? So that's a small error. Russell understandably reacting to it. I mean, they're going along at 300 kilometers an hour. Yeah, he's thinking he's coming all the way into my racing line. Like, right? He, yeah, he thinks Botas is going to basically be in the same spot that he currently occupies in a short amount of time. Tries to avoid that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I can't. It's just you know, yeah, I'd have to watch it a lot more times to see who is actually at fault. You know, so but it was a huge crash. They took out a bunch of the the markers that kind of tell you when you're coming. You know the. 200 150 100 foot markers that tell you when you're coming up to a turn you know what your distance is uh basically like styrofoam and carbon fibers all over the track so it was a while one removing the two cars but also removing all the debris from the track so that the carbon fiber isn't shredding tires and stuff so and um, i think what what you were maybe alluding to as we went into that was it seems like that did that do Hamilton a little bit of a favor? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it basically pausing grouped, everything. It paused everything. It grouped everybody back up. Allowed, allowed people to work on the cars. Yep. You could work on your cars. You could change tires, all that sort of stuff. So they could make sure their car was exactly the setup that they wanted. Yeah. Heading into the back half of the race. You know, so I think that did help them, you know, but credit to, to Lando Norris. I mean, he put up yeah. a hell of a fight to try and defend second place. He was... Yeah, he was I on did. he was on the softs and they were degrading near the end of the race but he basically kept lewis at bay for yeah probably at i least, thought at least two laps longer than he yeah. he really had any right to, not any yeah, right no, to but I like agree, yeah he did a hell of a drive to keep him back there as long as he did yeah no that was really impressive to see i know uh lando um got you know driver of the day and i i think he earned every every one of those votes um yeah you know and just you know he's 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 a young guy. He's he's really fast, but mm-hmm. like you were saying during the race, you know, he's made some mis- young guy mistakes. Yeah, and you know, he had both Ferraris, you know, on his ass. He had Lewis Hamilton coming up, 
um, a debate, a mental debate about how much do I fight Lewis? Am I going to lose, you know, tires, right. You know, fighting what may be the inevitable, uh, right. Like you said, am I going to lose a lot of time with this battle? And then the Ferraris, you know, are back in DRS range. So he held it all together. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the, the know, key for him his... was he he was able to keep that fight going long enough that the time <laughs> yeah. he did lose, by the time Hamilton passed him, the Ferraris didn't have enough laps left to try and, you know, get get within striking distance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So super impressive. Um Moving on to some folks that were less than impressive. So, you know, Verstappen, there's not much to say about his race. He he did he did great. Yeah. He won. He was in clean air most of the time. His teammate, however, Sergio Perez, I, I was just thinking really, about that. really struggled. Poor guy, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and I don't know exactly if it was tire choice getting, you know, not yeah. getting his tires warmed up, but he went off track at least three times in the gravel. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll say this, you know, I, I really have high hopes for Sergio Perez. I think that uh, qualifying really spoke to what, what he is capable of. Yeah, um, he I is think, fast. Yeah, I think I think Perez really needs to get a podium uh, mm-hmm. within the next race. Otherwise, it's going to, we're going to start the same, you know, downward spiral that we saw with yeah. some extent Ricardo. The, he Alex. can't keep up with Max spiral. Yeah, yeah, and and it's I don't know what it is about that second car with Red Bull, but it is just that once that spiral starts, it, it seems like it's a mental issue. Yeah, for a lot of these guys being Max's teammate and just the pressure of the second yeah. Red Bull car, and to well, some extent last year, some a lot of Sergio's you know, flameouts were because like engines, power plants blew up, like mm-hmm. just crazy stuff that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Mechanical this, failure. Yeah. This race was kind of unusual because he, he's a reasonably disciplined driver. So he's usually very consistent. That's part yeah, of why they like so him. I, I really have high hopes for him. I, I think he's going to do really well, but I really think he needs to get on a podium in the next race to, to kind of change the momentum for him. Yeah, I think you're on to something. I mean, he, he he's a, you know, one thing that he has going for him is unlike Alex Albon, he's not a spring chicken in the sport. Like he's a veteran. Right. He kind of knows how this, he kind of knows how the show works. Um, but I think it will start knocking his confidence a bit if his teammate is winning in, in this car while he's like languishing and, you know, out of the points or barely in the points. And I think today he knew it was his fault. I think one of his, one of his radio communications to his team when he went off uh, for the second or third time was like, how many mistakes am I going to make? Or yeah, something to that effect. So like he knew he was screwing up very uncharacteristic for him. So I think it, I don't, I'm not going to read too much into this uh, because I think he is a very consistent driver and I think he'll come back strong. I think it's tough though with the Red Bull cars because they, yeah. Even though he has some say in how his his own individual car is set up, generally speaking, the platform has I think largely, and he's said this before, has largely been engineered around Max's driving style, which is very different from his own. Um, and so he's basically having to adapt to a car that is not set up for his driving style, even it, 
when he tweaks it the best he can. I think he's always going to be at a disadvantage in a head-to-head against Max because the car is not built for him. Fair enough. Um, but he is a consistent driver. I, I think he'll he'll be up there fighting amongst the Ferraris and the McLarens for, for you know, fourth, third, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I think he definitely could use a podium. Someone else that could use a podium but probably is not going to get one, Sebastian Vettel. It's so... it. It's just mind-boggling to me how much slower he is than Stroll in the yeah. first two races. Uh, and I mean, that's I'd, really saying something. I mean, it was it was one thing when it was the comparison was last year with Ferrari, mm-hmm. and um, and Leclerc's a fast Leclerc. driver. That's a tough yeah, comparison, right? Exactly. Like he's super fast. And thing is, though, Stroll is like not. He's a good driver. Like he's, he's a, a mid pack driver. driver, right? But he's not a Leclerc, right? And so to to see the same thing kind of persist, I, I I've said this to you. I I think that I think just Vettel's days are just done. I think they've been done for a while, and I think he's kind of like a Kimi Raikkonen almost mm-hmm. now, just like hanging out, driving cars at the track on a Sunday, getting a paycheck, enjoying himself until someone won't <laughs> give yeah. him another seat. You know, yeah. He just doesn't yeah. have the same hunger that these young guys do. He's, I don't think he's out there taking probably the same risks, maybe the same approaches. Yeah. I, I don't think he's got like anything to really prove. Yeah. I think his, I mean, part of it, we don't know how much the gearbox issues affected him. Like, you know, if he was dropping a gear, like I could understand him being slow and he ended up having to retire like at the second to last lap. To, to save his gearbox, it sounded like. So that may have been part of it. But I mean, just generally speaking, even in qualifying, like his pace is just not there. And I think you're right. I think there's part of it that is the the passion to prove and willingness to take risks related to that is probably not there anymore. I think he knows he's not in a competitive car. He's not going to be fighting for podiums. And if you're someone that's won multiple world championships and now you're in a car that you know you have no reliable like the best you can hope for is to get in the points unless everyone you know unless a bunch of people crash in front of you you're probably not even at third it's probably hard to keep the motivation up to compete you know um so the only other uh drive that i kind of wanted to to mention was yuki sonoda he was kind of yeah in the thick of things a bit and then he spun and and he he got about eight warnings for track limits yeah that poor um, guy i you I, know i joked to you i i remember his uh instructor or whatever the drive race engineer yeah yeah, has a very thick accent, so I was thinking like maybe the two of them can't understand each other in English, <laughs> and so he's like thinking like, what am I doing wrong? I'm just driving my car. Yeah, <laughs> he's getting track limits. <laughs> I still don't understand track limits, dude. I mean, like I, there was at one point where um, I think Stroll braked late, basically went off track and passed somebody, and like. No, didn't have to give the spot back. No warning for track limits. You know, meanwhile, they show, they show the, uh, where Yuki Sonoda went off the track enough to get a track, like a five second penalty for track limits. And it's like his tire barely left the, you know, barely, barely left the track and went on to like the painted rumble strip and he gets a penalty. It's like, 
okay, dude, I just don't get it. Like, if you got guys going off the track completely into the gravel and passing people and they don't have to give the spot back, I don't understand track limits. <laughs> I agree. It is a it is a confusing subject. I don't know if there's oh we we should we should look into it a little bit, try to understand that better yeah. because um I don't know if it's you it's know two races in a row where it's kind of come up significantly. Yeah, it's a little bit nebulous at times. Yeah. Well, uh anyways, it was oh, a great one other race. thing. Yeah, Our, um Mazda spin. Oh, thank God. Yes. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, yeah. We We thought we were going to be cheating. (laughs) (laughs) We thought for sure. I think both of of us at the beginning of the race were like, you know, we should put some money on bets. He's he's spinning into the first turn. It's just a matter of like right when. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He waited 62 of the 63 laps. But we yeah. finally got a Mazda spin at the end. We did it. Oh man! Speaking of, just the Haases are such a travesty. I mean, oh my Schumacher. Schumacher was yeah. in in 16th. He was so the, they were at the back of the pack um, in 16th and 17th, I believe, with the rest obviously having crashed out or DNF'd. And Schumacher was over a minute behind the guy, the 15th place guy and Mazda spin was like close to a minute, I think behind Schumacher. I mean, they're just so far, like they're just so it's far a, back. Yeah. It's, it's horrific. I um, honestly, what, whatever they plan to do between this season and next season, it's not going to change anything. No, I, just, I mean, you can develop crazy. the 2022 car all you want. They're just, they're, they're, they're a back yeah. <laughs> Gene Haas just needs to like cut his losses and, and Probably, go, go home. I hate to say that, but yeah, that Leave, whole enterprise needs to be rebooted. As yeah, much as I want to see an American team in it, I think you just leave it to the Russians at this point. Yeah. <laughs> let let Mazda spin yeah. dead, finish buying up the rest of the yeah. equity in the team. All right. Well, next race is uh, is going to be in uh, Portugal in a couple of weeks, so uh, it should be a lot of fun. Kind of see how things evolve, but uh, so far it's been a really fun season. Um, moving on to uh, some automotive news, uh, kind of more up your alley than than mine, but we've got a couple EVs that have really uh, officially debuted this week. Uh, the first is the Audi Q4 e-tron which is going to be the company's cheapest electric model with a starting price of about 45 grand. When you factor in the federal uh, EV tax credit, uh, it should cost about 37.5 in its kind of least expensive base version, uh, putting it slightly less than the Tesla model three sedan. Um, Audi hasn't revealed the prices for the more expensive iterations of the Q4 that'll be coming out. Um, and uh, they're expecting those details to come out closer to when the e-tron, the Q4 e-tron officially goes on sale by the end of the year. This entry-level version is going to have rear-wheel drive. It's not all-wheel drive like the more expensive versions. And it has about 250 miles of range with the uh, maximum power output being about 201 horsepower. What did you think of this, Tucker? I mean, aesthetically, I know there's some issues. I also had some issues with the, uh, the range, but I wanted to hear what you had yeah. to think about it. Well, I mean, I think they're getting closer to where they need to be with range in, in the United States. I think bare minimum range probably should be 300 miles in the U.S. And so when it comes out and it's all-wheel drive form, we're going to lose a little bit more of that range. But 
-hmm. Basically, this vehicle is the equivalent of the Volkswagen ID4 um, mm -hmm. in terms of its size. And the unique thing about this car is it's uh, completely on their uh, electric platform. So it's designed from the ground up to be an electric, mm -hmm. getting some weight you know, gains from that that are, you know, an improvement, some efficiency improvements. Mm -hmm. and, um, one of the things that's really kind of interesting, and I'm going to just draw a parallel here between the, you know, we've got the e-tron, the first SUV that came out. And mm -hmm. I, I assume this will hold true for the Q4 version, but the ID4 actually, um, this guy uh, Bjorn on YouTube does this banana box test where he shoves boxes into all these and figures out their how much they can you know fit. carry. Mm -hmm. Well, the uh, ID four can actually fit more in it than the e-tron, our current mm -hmm. one, and that was built on kind of an old gas platform. So it really just speaks volumes to the space savings you can get with EVs um, in terms of the interior, and so. Right. Because it's, a, I think it's essentially be, just a skateboard kind of platform, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. So, from I, I think that this is a is an important vehicle, just like the ID four is um, for Volkswagen. These are smaller SUVs that you see as being ubiquitous on the roads, right. and so I think both of these um, could really end up being uh, you know large volume sellers and. You know, 250 miles of range is nice. Uh, it's yeah. going to get you to most of the places you need to go without needing to fast charge. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's a nice, it should be end up in a, a, a sweet spot. I think. Yeah. I, I agree. I think we're going to see a ton of them. You know, we were talking during the race just about EVs in general. And I said, you know, it. I wouldn't mind one as a daily driver, but I'm not. Pretty much every EV that I think looks any good is well north of hundred grand. And, and that's just crazy to me. It's, you know, I, I'm not going to spend that kind of money on a daily driver. And I, but I, I think the Q4 is much more accessible, you know, like you're starting to get a lot closer to what the average American expects to pay for a new vehicle, especially when you factor in the tax credit. And so yeah. I think we'll see a ton <laughs> of them. And I think the 200, I, th I think the problem is like for a lot of people, dipping their toes into EVs for the first time, the range anxiety is real, you know, without yeah. knowing what it it'll actually. Still, yeah. The, it'll still you know, be real with this at 250 miles for. Yeah. So you know, I think like the 250 miles probably takes care of like 95% of most people's driving. Yeah. So 5% you're going to be thinking about range. And I think, you know, when we get up above 300 miles, you're probably like, you've just covered like 98 to 99% of what people do in a given year. Um, right. You're not going to have much in the way of range anxiety at that point. I agree. I think a lot of people though, look at it. They look at the extreme case, not the usual case. They don't think how am I going to use this every day? They look you're at right. it as like, Oh man, well, if I, for some reason need to drive down to Chicago, I can't make it there on a single, you know, you know like these, like, yeah, these like 0.1% of the time kind of cases. And that's what I've always, that's what I've always said. I mean, if let's say that, you know, you're the week <clears throat> doing the weekday grind, making a, you know, daily commute to work. It's whatever, 12 miles, mm -hmm. you know, this, this car is going to be wonderful for you. And, right. but let's say your kind of extreme use cases, well, 
five times a year, we like to go out to whatever Wyoming for hiking. Yeah. That's what we do five times a year. You're right. going to need a different car. You're going to need um, like a gas car as your, your second car to really do that. And I think in that scenario, when you've got one electric and one gas, this will be like a wonderful car. You'll be very happy with that purchase. But yeah, if your extreme use cases are like your hobbies, then I don't think it's, it's probably not going to be the right car at this point. We just don't have the infrastructure to really yeah. support that and not have to be leery of like, oh, is this Electrify America station going to work when I yeah. pull in? You know? Right. Which is a real question. I, it is I think, a real question, unfortunately. <laughs> the, the other thing that bothers me too, and it's completely subjective because it comes down to the styling is, and Audi's not the only one guilty of this, but it just, it feel the styling feels extremely lazy to me when you take an EV that has no need for a, a radiator grill and slap yeah. a gigantic <clears throat> grill on the front. It's like, can't you come up with yeah. something more interesting than just a giant? I mean, this is like one of the bigger Audi grills I've seen. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I am in complete agreement with that. I mean, when they, when we bought the e-tron, you know, that thing's got a huge silver grill on the front of it. And it really mm-hmm. wasn't a departure from their design language. Like you wouldn't even know it's an electric, quite frankly, unless you like know something about their cars. But right now that they're talking about, okay, we're going to have some crazy number of electric cars in our catalog by 2025. Yeah. Do we fundamentally need this design language? And my, my guess is that they are going to iterate away from it. But that mm-hmm. single frame Audi grill has just been so defining for the brand since like the freaking 2000s maybe even late 90s as they were approaching it yeah that they're gonna really have to come up with something new and unique yeah. and uh i'll tell you what whatever it is it's probably not it's probably gonna ruffle a lot of feathers <laughs> yeah it's gonna have think, to be different <laughs> you know yeah it's it's a fine line to walk like making it look futuristic and cutting edge without being kind of caricature-y. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I think it'll be, I, I think we're going to see a ton of them. So, uh, you know, hopefully, get used to it. <laughs> yeah, get used to it. And just quickly uh, to kind of round out the discussion, the Mercedes Benz EQS, which is really Mercedes electric vehicle answer to the S class. That's really what it's meant to be. Yeah. Um, and so it's really going to be their technological masterpiece. It's going to be what other cars are going to be aspiring to be two or three years later. And it's really reflected by the interior, which we'll talk about. But um, the EQS is, is powered by kind of a modular lithium ion battery pack uh, running a 400 volt architecture with a range of more than 400 miles, which is huge. Yeah, that's um, great. There's going to be some different iterations. There's going to be a rear-wheel drive form, an all-wheel drive form, and the all-wheel drive is going to be the more powerful version, but the power range is basically from 328 for the rear-wheel drive kind of more basic version to up to four, 516 for the uh, four-wheel drive version, and there's probably going to be an AMG version. They're thinking yeah. maybe up to 630 horsepower. Um, the really impressive thing <clears throat> from a styling aerodynamic standpoint is 
it has a 0.2 coefficient of drag, which is the lowest for any production car ever made. Um, Mercedes yeah. said that their designers really started the whole process of designing this vehicle with that figure in mind, which lends lends the EQS a pretty unique shape, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is really ugly, but it is very aerodynamic. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but the interior is really impressive. It's got the, the first full use of this hyper screen thing that they've been showing off where basically the entire dashboard is kind of an infotainment system. And I thought it was interesting. The in, This thing, the infotainment system alone requires eight CPU cores, 24 gigs of RAM, and 12 actuators under the touchscreen itself. I, Jesus. It's, I mean, you're talking about like... I didn't know that. <laughs> More than a high-end PC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, they haven't announced a price on this yet, but given that it's essentially an EVS class, <laughs> you can guess it's going to be in the probably 140, 150 range at least, if not pushing 200 on the high-end version as kind of a luxury sedan equivalent of a Taycan. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what did you think of this? Well, first of all, man, I think they knocked it out of the park um, in terms of an EV. Like, this yeah. is the first EV that you can look at and say, holy shit, you know, 400 miles of range. Like, they yeah, obviously designed a very efficient car. And right. that, I think, is what what actually says that this is a true, I'm not going to say it's a Tesla killer, because I think that's just clickbait, you know. Yeah, because this don't is think still going to be 60, 70 grand more than the Model yeah. S. So, but from the standpoint of like, we built an efficient car that gets great range without like, let's say, a, you know, like probably what'll be a GMC solution, which will be like, let's put in a 300 kilowatt hour battery pack, mm-hmm. you know, and just, yeah, we'll get 400 miles out of that. But we'll brute force it. <laughs> yeah. Basically. So from that standpoint, I, I love it. I think it's, they knocked it out of the park in terms of an EV. I think. Mm-hmm. For the S class, it's. I watched a review on on YouTube, and and the guy who owns a couple of Teslas and has driven a bunch of EVs was like, "This is the most amazing EV I've ever been in," and mm-hmm. so I think they're getting it right. Like they've got the EV interior, the feel, the range, and then it's got the comfort of an S class. Like amazing. Yeah. Um, completely agree with you. I don't like the way it looks. I would never buy it. Um, it doesn't speak to me. I think they probably, from my perspective, they chased the aerodynamics a little too heavily. Yeah. Um, I Because let, I'll say this, you know, Mercedes uh, design language outside of this car has been very attractive to me. Um, yeah. Some of the vehicles I've seen on the road, it's like, that's a really good looking car. They I have some of the best envious. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. This I'm not at all envious of. <laughs> yeah but, yeah you know for pulling in a new group of folks into the ev world you know if you're a distinguished mercedes buyer who wants to take the plunge this is the car to do it and yeah you're going to be really happy with this car because it's going to yeah. have great range and um i don't know once you're inside it it's going to be like you're floating on a cloud yeah it's, that's it's that's like what a lot of the reaction like i've seen <laughs> That's a lot of the reaction I've seen is like, you'll forget the interior or the exterior <laughs> once you get inside and the interior is yeah. amazing and it does look amazing. Um, I think, yeah, the 400 miles of range is huge. The most exciting thing to me about this isn't so much this car, 
It's the fact that if Mercedes have worked out their EV architecture with this car, as with the regular S-Class, that technology mm-hmm. is going to trickle down to the E-Class, the C-Class yeah. over time. So you're talking to me about, you know, assuming it's a good looking car, if you're talking to me about an EV C-Class that has 400 miles range, now I'm interested. Now I'm very interested. I agree. Um, I agree. And I think it's just, like I said, I actually think they hit this out of the park. Um, I think, you know, when you look at like the Taycan, you look at the e-tron GT, like they're cool looking cars, mm-hmm. but they're not like super practical for EVs. Like they don't have the best range. I think right. Mercedes, like they get it. Like yeah. they get it. The, the starting place is we need to, we need to have great range. And I think this right. car is going to be there. And then they can build off that in the future. Yeah. I think, I think that sums it up well. Um, well, anything else you wanted to add this week, buddy? I don't think so. All right. Uh, well, thank you all for listening. Um, if you want to get a, a, in touch with us and, and interact with us, we're on social media. Uh, our Instagram account is the Bluff Valve Podcast. Um, it's where you can get updates on the show when they're coming out. Ask us questions or give us show topics that you want to hear about. And uh, until next week, thank you all so much. Bye-bye.